0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We are the brave ones we we'll need to go outside tonight. Some of you were here last week, probably, and... I began talking about uh, this new book that we're using. Some of you are reading along with It's Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. It's a good book. Some of you uh, heard that this is based on a series of 47 talks, I believe, something like that, that Joseph gave over a period of uh, three years or so at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, where he often teaches in a place that many of us have gone out to to do our own practice. And then he collected them in this book, and it's on this discourse the Buddha gave, this talk on mindfulness practice. And the Buddha was very clear at the beginning. I read the beginning of the talk, of the Buddhist talk last week, where the Buddha says, this is the one method. It's kind of a provocative thing, but I think it's worth while reflecting on that, if we're going to direct the mind in a wholesome direction or move our life in a wholesome direction, that there is a particular method. And regardless of how you think about it or how you might language it, it would involve using the mind to see or to know the mind. And we could say, and you can just reflect whether this makes sense from your own observations of your own mind and those minds around you, those people around you, that all the problems in our world, all the problems in our life, our lives, all the problems in the world, have to do with minds not knowing the mind, right? Minds misperceiving or misunderstanding the nature of their experience. That's what leads to people being mean, mean spirited, leads to nations being oppressive and violent. So just to hold that, not to like believe that as an absolute truth, but is that true that problems arise from ignorance in minds? Minds not understanding clearly the nature of what's going on. In particular, the nature of what's going on in the mind itself. And all the good that we've run across in our lives, moments of people being generous and kind and wise skillfully responding, doing what needs to be done, that those moments of people being skillful, whether we were the one being skillful or we saw another person being skillful, those skillful acts have, have arisen because the mind was clearly understanding the mind. I mean, is it true that not knowing our mind is in fact maybe the most dangerous thing? And understanding the mind, the heart deeply, is liberating. Because we spend a lot of time, you know, in terms of making ourselves safe, we spend a lot of times doing all kinds of things that don't really pay off very well. I mentioned last week that in this discourse of the Buddha, he names four qualities that really support this practice of mindfulness. And the first was ardency. And this is this wholeheartedness, kind of a full, sustained effort. We're really giving our heart in a a way, in a steadfast way, to what really matters. It's like you can imagine wholesome parents. They have a kid, they have a baby, And they really give themselves to that task of taking care of the baby, raising the baby. You know, they waver a little bit, maybe they get a little exhausted, a little frayed around the edges and maybe lose it a little bit at times with their kid. But that's a sustained effort. used to be to 18, now maybe to the (laughs) mid-20s. Some of you are laughing, who have teenagers and are wondering how long it's going to go. But that's a, that's what we call a sustained effort. And in a way, I think in a very real way, taking care of the mind is not so different than raising a child. This mind of ours is certainly capable of being a two year old or one month year old, and maybe at times, you know, being a really wise ninety year old or something. But we have to care for the mind. I mean, if we don't care for the mind, it's going to come back and bite us. In our previous book that we were looking at, Ajahn Chah's book, um, he uses this simile a lot of picking up a cobra, you know, and how it's going to bite you. And the mind is a little bit like that. It It's going to cause us problems. Until we really understand it, it's going to cause us problems. And just because we've gotten by relatively well so far, having a mind, understanding it to some degree, doesn't mean that down the road, you know, like I can imagine being in a situation, you know, I've had a pretty easy go of it in my life. I've been healthy, I haven't had a lot of um, difficult experience in my life. I mean, I have a mind, that's difficult. But externally speaking, I haven't had a lot of difficult experience in my life. But if things change, and they could change, there's no reason they couldn't change, you know, who knows what sort of tendencies of my mind might start coming out. If we picked ourselves up and put ourselves in a war zone, or my wife and I saw 12 Years a Slave last night, so you've probably heard of this movie or maybe seen it, it's a pretty powerful film, and it's about a man in the 1800s who goes to Washington, D.C., and ends up being captured, kidnapped by some slave traders, basically, and gets sent to the South and spends 12 years as a slave, as the title suggests, before he's able to free himself again. And, uh, well, that's not likely to happen to us, dramatic things, dramatic changes can happen. And then the question is, well, how will our mind be if our boss starts to have a really hard time with us or our partner doesn't want to be with us anymore or our body starts to fall apart or the world around us starts to fall apart in some way. So reflecting in this way can evoke ardency. This, like, I want to take care of this mind. If there's something I can do to develop this mind, I want to do it. In the Buddhist tradition, in the way the Buddha taught, you know, he, the great thing about how the Buddha taught, he was totally okay about dealing with very mundane things. Like, if people really want good things to happen to them, not, we might not think that's like cool to want nice things to happen to us, you know, to have, want a lot of wealth or to want You know, to find the right person who loves us and will love us forever. You know, these things we stereotypically think as good things to happen to a human being. But the Buddha, like, if that's where people were coming from, he'd give them advice. Okay, you want good things to happen? He'd say, do these three things. These are the three roots of meritorious actions. Like, these are the actions that inevitably lead to good things coming back to that person. Complaining isn't one of them. Nor is really wanting something good to happen to us a cause for good things happening to us. Those are not the causes for good things happening. He said, cultivating generosity or becoming a generous person will lead to good things happening to you. In very mundane ways, cultivating sila or ethical conduct Basically, making a commitment not to harm will cause good things to happen to you in a way that can't be stopped. It's not personal. It's not like uh, you deserve good things to happen to you. So it's like uh, a law of science, you know, in a relative sense. If you throw an apple up, it will come down. Well, in that same basic physical sense, materialistic sense, if you do good things, if you're a generous person. If you respect life, don't harm others, good things will happen to you. And the third root of meritorious action, cause for good things happening, is to develop your mind. And by this, he's talking about things like mindfulness, like if you stabilize and balance your mind, so it's steady, unshakable, and clear, clearly aware of the way it is, You can't help it have good things come from that development of mind. The Pali word is bhavana, bhavana, the development of the mind, stabilizing the mind. And you could just go the other way, you know. If you want really bad things to unfold in your life, cultivate stinginess, you know. Start doing mean things to other people and pay no attention to how your mind's doing, you know, and let it become a wreck distracted, fragile, reactive, scattered. You know, we what happens to us sometimes where we get really scattered, I don't know, we just, sometimes maybe it's what we ate or didn't get enough sleep or something, but a couple days ago, my mind was just a mess. And it was like one accident after another. I dropped a bottle in the basement and it shattered all over the place and then... You know, it's like mistakes driving my car and saying weird things that just kind of came out of my mouth. And, and it's like there can be serious problems just in being spacey or scattered. So as we begin this many-month study of this talk the Buddha gave based on using Joseph Goldstein's book, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's talk or the Buddha's teachings on the foundations of mindfulness or the ways to establish mindfulness, we want to pay close attention to these four qualities that the Buddha says right from the beginning are essential. Ardency, which really comes from this realization, it's an insight that the mind is worthy of taking care of, developing the mind. It's meaningful. It's the most meaningful thing. In the same way, you get a new smartphone, you're going to take care of it. You're going to be careful with it. You know, you get a new car, a new partner. For a while, you know, you're really there, present with this new person in your life. A new baby, even. But especially the mind. It's worthy of our attention, worthy of our care. And even though we may not know how to take care of it, well, we like anything else we have that's precious. Well, we figure it out. We'd ask questions about people who have been taking care of their minds. How do you take care of your mind? What doesn't work? What mistakes have you made so I can avoid them? What's really worked? And then we go. Well, the Buddha is somebody who figured out how to take care of his mind. Let's hear what he says. You well, know, we we listen because somehow we intuit. This mind is the most relevant thing. Like the Buddha said, it can be either our worst enemy, our mind, or our best friend. And it just depends on how we relate to it, what we do with it. So then with that ardency and that the sustained effort, like the willingness to apply ourselves to this task of taking care of the mind, then we discover, you know, through looking about, listening, we discover because it makes sense that the next attribute the Buddha talks about, the Pali word is sampajana, or clearly comprehending the way it is. Clearly conscious, clearly aware, fully aware. These are the different ways it gets translated. So then, then we're understanding, well, this makes a lot of sense, that one of the ways to take care of the mind is to be fully aware clearly comprehending how it is, like what the mind is doing. What's what is the mind setting in motion? Like what kind of heart or mind are we setting in motion or reinforcing right now? Like that's relevant. Because the way our mind is, the way our mind tends to be, of course, it has arisen because of what's been set in motion in the past. If I've been grumpy all day that grumpiness must have been set in motion, the tendency to be grumpy. So it's relevant, like, what kind of heart and mind are we setting in motion? This is what we want to be clearly comprehending. This is what Joseph says in his book. This chapter, this is chapter 2, by the way, on clear comprehension. Or here, Joseph's translating it as clear knowing. Cultivating clear comprehension. That's the title. And he says, the second paragraph, "...cultivating clear comprehension, knowing what we're doing and why, is a profound and transforming practice. It highlights the understanding that mindfulness is more than simply being present. With clear comprehension, we know the purpose and appropriateness of what we're doing. We understand the motivations behind our actions." So often we find ourselves in the middle of an action before we quite know how we got there. He goes on, talking about like, have you ever noticed being in the refrigerator, reaching in the box or whatever, and you don't even know how you got there? Or all of a sudden, you know, you've started talking about something to somebody that you told yourself, I'm not going to talk about this with this person. And there you are. Like, how did I get here? because we're not clearly comprehending what's going on. We're not really there. He ends this section by saying, When we act in full awareness of even small things, it's possible to notice the motivation and then to consider, is this motivation, this action, skillful or not, useful or not? And this is the real fruit of clearly comprehending. As we enter, it's like a whole new dimension. You could call it the dimension of wisdom, actually. Human beings are not always wise. We have to enter the dimension of wisdom. There has to be enough clear comprehension that the mind is clearly comprehending the activity of the mind, and in particular the different motivations or intentions that are present. And you know, in any moment there could be many different intentions moving in the mind. And some of them might be quite horrific, You know, like, we just want to slap that person. But we're not going to act on that intention because there's enough clear comprehension to recognize the quality of that motivation or intention, like really sensing, that's not going to help. That's going to make things worse. Don't do that. And other intentions might look more skillful. So maybe we start to act it out, and then as we're acting it out, Because we're clearly comprehending, we start to see what begins to unfold, and maybe we back off because we realize that's not as skillful as I thought it was. It looked better internally, but once I brought it externally out into the world, I'm beginning to recognize this is not so skillful. But all of this, just the ability to be what we sometimes call a moral person or an ethical person, depends on some clear comprehension Otherwise, we're literally blind morally in the sense that how we respond, how we act, is just being driven by intentions or motivations that we're unaware of because we're not clearly comprehending what the mind is doing. This is the world of karma, right? Karma in Buddhist teachings, in the Buddhist teachings, means to understand the relevance of intentional action. I mentioned this last week, that this famous phrase from the Buddha, that we are literally, as a moral agent, we are born out of our actions. Our life, the quality of our existence, really arises out of the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our actions. How well our life unfolds depends on our actions. And I mentioned last week, too, you know, I know and other people who have worked with prisoners or inmates or people, once they have left prison, you hear over and over again, and we just know generally from people, our own experience, you know, how quickly life can change from one miscalculation, one sort of identification with a moment of rage and acting on that rage, on that anger... And things can shift in our life. We can say something to our partner that forever damages the relationship. And there's just no way to fix it. No way to go back to the moment before we said what we said or did what we did. And it can happen very quickly. We get intoxicated by certain thoughts, certain images in our mind, certain experiences. And that motivation that then gets triggered arises and we're not comprehending it, we're not really seeing, tasting it, seeing what it's leading to, or seeing other alternatives. So we just do the big thing that's gotten triggered in the heart, We just act it out. So we have ardency, this basic, really, I think, primal sense that comes out of basic goodness in the heart, like basic goodness, the The most fundamental goodness in the heart is this basic recognition, I care about this life. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't, at least at times, connect with that basic goodness, that basic sense of caring about this existence? And so with that basic goodness and reflecting on it and listening, we begin to see that what I should do with that willingness to take care of this life is I should really take care of the mind. I should get to know the know the mind. And that's that, that ardency is being directed to taking care of the mind, getting to know the mind. And then we discover that one of the ways to get to know the mind is to cultivate, it's really a training, clear comprehension. And clear comprehension depends so much on the continuity. It's like the tracking. To really comprehend something We have to hang out for a while. If we got a new job, you know, something we haven't done before, it's not easy just to step in. It'd be so much easier if the boss allowed us just to hang out in that space where everyone's doing that job and just to observe for a while. I mean, think about how easy life would be if we really had the time and space to just sit back and watch what we're going to be doing in a minute or two, or an hour or two, just to really get how it all works. So this is like we're being asked to be alive and to be uh, in relationship with other people and to feed ourselves and take care of our you know, basic duties of being a human being. But we haven't cultivated this reflective, observant witness Oh yeah, this is how it works. I mean, imagine, just imagine if we could sit inside of the heart or mind of a really wise person and just observe how they handle all the ups and downs of their lives. You know, the insults and the blaming and the joys and beauty, beautiful moments that arise for that person. And we could just have this perfect seat where we could observe how their mind is being saintly, you know, and moving through their life effortlessly with great wisdom and kindness and patience and forgiveness and, you know, all the saintly qualities that we might imagine a really wise person would have. We would learn so fast. And the same way, if we could do that with somebody who was really unskillful, we would learn so much. Oh yeah, don't do that. Because what we'd see, like in their very gross, obvious misadventures, we'd see the root of that in our own mind. Like the more quiet tendency that would maybe someday lead to that very same big unskillful action. I mean, that we see that now, but now we just haven't cultivated So this clear comprehension, it's not just observing our own mind, but it's observing everybody's mind. And basically, we're observing it with this particular map that we call karma. We're just seeing how intentional actions, and remember, intentional actions does not mean you're conscious of them. Like, I can intentionally harm you without being conscious of my decision to be mean. But it's an intentional action and it has real consequences, right? So we can use this ardent, this wholeheartedness then to basically comprehend what's going on. And from a personal subjective point of view, what is going on is karma. There are intentional actions and there are consequences to intentional actions. And from a subjective personal point of view, that is the most relevant thing. Like, if we want to learn anything from life, We want to learn that there are intentional actions here and everywhere else, every other living being, and there are consequences to those intentional actions. And to the degree we study them, we clearly comprehend, we'll know what sort of intentional actions of thought, word, and deed to cultivate and which to abandon. That's how people become skillful. They learn from life and they... In it, part of like learning from life is knowing where the teacher is. And, you know, the Buddha really distilled this. He said, the ultimate teacher, your ultimate guru are the intentions in your own heart. If you want to learn from somebody, study the intentions in your heart and where they lead. Not the surface of your actions. Like I can say and do nice things to my wife or friend, but sometimes, the intention isn't nice, you know, the intention is, you know, kind of poking. But on the surface, you know, it it may appear to be nice. Or sometimes we're really coming from a deep and caring place, but what we do or say really hurts somebody. But it's the right thing to say and do. It's the best thing to do in that moment. But people get hurt from it, they don't feel good about it. But it was the right thing to do. So that's what clear comprehension allows. And related to that is the next quality the Buddha talks about. So we have ardency, there are four ardency, clear comprehension, mindfulness, and then concentration. Or best the better word for this is not uh, not concentration, but steadiness of mind. Balance and steadiness of mind instead of concentration. So, here the mindfulness, the third quality, what I'm, which I'm going to talk about next, uh, is really talking about more of a technical understanding of mindfulness. Because we talk about the whole path as a path of mindfulness. This is a talk the Buddha gave on mindfulness, sati. So, we have ardency, we have clearly comprehending, we have mindful awareness. And we have that steadiness, that balance of awareness. And the four of these coming together makes insight and awakening and liberation unavoidable. The the image the Buddha used is just as the Ganges, the big river in India, northern India, inevitably, unavoidably slopes, goes to the ocean. And the same way when you put these when you've cultivated these four, set them to the task of knowing the mind and body, then awakening is unavoidable. Becoming a happier, freer, more alive and loving human being cannot be stopped. And remember, this awakening process is also nature. It's not personal. Like a lot of times we feel, we take it personally, and we, when our practice isn't unfolding like we want it to, we feel like a personal failure. But the thing is, it's like nature. When you go to a lake and lower the temperature, I mean, if you could, or, you know, go to your freezer, and you put water in that freezer, you fill a jar of water, close it right to the brim, and you close it, Right? When you put that jar of water in the freezer, as it starts to cool down, that water is going to expand. And it doesn't matter how strong that container is. You could have an aluminum container or a stainless steel container. But when those molecules start getting below 32 degrees, they're going to do what water does when it freezes. It's going to expand, right? And when it expands it's going to break that container. And there's no way, this is a law of nature, there's no way that it can be stopped. And this is a nice way, this actually builds ardency. You might even, from hearing this, you might even kind of feel like, oh yeah, when we cultivate these four things, awakening happens. And there isn't anybody who can stop it from happening. Except if you stop cultivating these four qualities. So if you cultivate ardency, clearly comprehending, and then by mindfulness, the Buddha, in technically talking about mindfulness, he's really talking about um, a cultivation of a present moment-ness. This is one of the first aspects of the technical definition of mindfulness. It's this presence of mind. And the the interesting thing is we often think that we're present. You know, we could interview everybody in this country right now, and probably 99% of the people would say, yeah, I'm kind of aware of the present moment. But what we don't realize is how our, our awareness of the present moment is actually constantly colored by thoughts and, excuse me, concepts. So here, when he's talking about present moment awareness, present momentness, maybe we could say, he's really talking about an unfiltered or bare attention. So like if you're touching something, most of us are touching something with our hands. Now, what's that experience having nothing to do with your perception, your ideas or images you have? That's getting toward their attention. Or the experience of being at Common Ground. Now, without your ideas of, I am at Common Ground, or I'm liking this talk, or I'm not liking this talk, or I want to go home, or... like, What's this actual experience of sitting here? Well, it's just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and the movement of thought. What's the experience of thought from the point of view of bare attention? Right. It's just that energetic movement of, I mean, thought. What is a thought independent of the context of the thought or the content of the thought? What's a thought, not the content of the thought, but what's a thought as an energetic event? Well, it's not much, is it? What is an emotion independent of our thought uninfluenced by our thought about the emotion? Like what is the feeling of joy or the feeling of sorrow as an event in and of itself? So that's getting toward the present momentness of experience. So mindfulness has this quality, this ability to not be confused, See we won't be able to stop our thoughts and our memory and perception, you know, all the content that arises when we do see something or hear something or touch something or think something. It's going to trigger, you know, all the related conceptual stuff. And there's really nothing we... I mean, we can, through practice and training, we can quiet it down to some degree, even... At times when the concentration is really deep, thinking and conceptual activity, cognitive activity even, can get really quiet. But generally, it's active to some degree. And most of the time it's active to a large degree. But that doesn't have to be a problem because the bare attention, it depends on a wisdom that's not confused by the conceptual activity. So it's not dependent on it going away completely. It's just not confused by it. So, like, my mind is capable of having the experience of that bare experience of touching, smoothness, some warmth. Just that direct, bare experience of touch, of contact. And it, my mind can nimbly go back, you know, that's a smooth wood, Mary, who made this for Common Ground, You know, she did a nice job, you know, making that wood smooth and the finish, it's not too slick, the polyurethane's not, you know, so I can have lots of thoughts and I can nimbly go back and forth to bear attention and then to the whole conceptual overlay, like all that I know about this lectern that I'm touching and having touched other wood at other times in my life and how it compares to that wood that I previously have touched, and then go back and forth. So, when we're cultivating mindfulness, we can spend a lot of time trying to shut off the stream of thinking. And it's, it's a frustrating endeavor. Or, we can just cultivate the bare attention. And when thought and content intervenes, comes, then just don't practice not being confused by, oh, that's just a thought. Like, have the bare attention with the thought. You see? So instead of like trying to stop thought from arising, the thoughts I have about the touching of the wood, when they get strong, when those thoughts are predominant, then just notice, oh, that's just thought. Thought being known. It's just this little cognitive activity being known. I don't need to resist it or identify with it. I don't need to make it more than what it is or less than what it is. The same thing with the touching of the wood. I don't need to make that contact, contact contact touching more than what it is or less than what it is. Or hearing or seeing more than what it is or less than what it is. See, we can do that with seeing too. It's like, what is seeing in terms of bare attention? You know, shape, color, form. And then there's, then we let we kind of attune to the recognition. Oh yeah, this is this room I recognize. I'm at Comagrane and I recognize some of the people in the room. And I like that sweater. And I don't like that shirt over there. So all that cognitive activity and then bear attention. So this is one of the qualities of mindfulness, this present momentness where we are training or cultivating the ability the capacity of the mind to not be confused by the conceptual activity, the cognitive activity. Still may be going on, but the mind is able to, in a sense, drop into a bare, simple attention. Things like the things in and of themselves. Another aspect, or let me just mention this one thing about that present momentness, is that it's really a satisfying feeling. It's like in those moments when the mind has bare attention, initially you might feel, it might feel a little empty, not in a Buddhist sense, but like stark, uh, uninteresting. It's like if, uh, you know, like just an example touching wood, you know, it's kind of boring. (laughs) But it's only boring to the thinking mind. So when when an experience, like walking meditation, where we tend to walk back and forth, you know, it might be interesting for a few steps, but then, you know, after 15, 20 minutes, you can feel, yeah, really boring, but only to the thinking mind. Conceptually speaking, from the point of view of me, who have so many important and interesting things I could be doing, walking is a waste of time, you know, or stupid, boring. But when the mind really enters completely in a bare, simple way, the experience of lifting and moving and placing and all the elements of the walking experience, it's quite satisfying. But it's not satisfying because walking is inherently satisfying, but the simplicity of knowing or the simplicity of awareness is satisfying. And that's a telltale sign to the development of mindfulness when the stream of knowing, the quality of knowing or the quality of being mindful itself is an end in itself. It's it's like it brings up a contentedness so the mind actually gets less dependent on interesting things, interesting experiences arising because the quality of awareness itself is satisfying. So look for that sense of wholeness or completeness or satisfaction that arises not because of what's happening in your life or what's being known in your life, but the fullness of the awareness itself is satisfying. Another aspect of mindfulness, this technical side of mindfulness is Mindfulness has this way of remembering what needs to be remembered, like bringing to the moment the information that needs to be brought to this moment. It's like when you go downstairs to get something and then you forget what you're trying to get. You know, you're there. You knew you had to get something, but you can't remember, or you go to the store even. You know, what was it? How did I get in my car and drive to the store? What was it? So mindfulness has this way of bringing the information that's relevant in this moment. Mindfulness doesn't always mean there's no thinking. I mentioned this before. But it means that the thinking is connected with the moment. So, for example, what this can mean, now this can get neurotic, but it means that like, when the mind is getting out of balance, mindfulness knows how to bring the information to the forefront that basically the mind is saying to itself, Honey, you're out of balance. You need to brighten your mind. You need to calm down. You need to not look at that object of experience because it's agitating the mind. Perhaps you want to look, pay attention to this. So this is what mindfulness can do. It can tell or bring up the appropriate instructions. It's basically how wisdom operates in the mind, isn't it? It's like our own inner guru or teacher is there to sort of say, you know, don't do that, do this, look over here. It's like sometimes you'll hear this, um, I think Ajahn Chah, there was this funny story where someone said to Ajahn Chah, this great Thai teacher, you know, listen, you know, yesterday you said this to somebody. Now today I heard you say this other thing that was just the opposite. And his response was, well, that's how it is for teachers. They're just observing their students. And when they see them veering off the road to the left, they say, go to the right. And when they see them veering off to the road to the right, they say, go to the left. And this is what our own mind can do. It it sort of knows how to remember and recognize what is the appropriate information. I mean, this is the point of study. When we hear something that seems useful, then it's important that we reflect on it so it gets internalized. And it's like, this is what we mean, like in the West we call it a moral compass, or conscious, like we're conscientious. We can't help but feel something. When we're doing something off, we feel it, right? It's like there's an inner voice saying, "Do you really want to be doing that? Are you sure, this is okay." So this is now. You see how this ties into ardency, like when we're sitting, you know, and and we're there just fantasizing and planning our day tomorrow, and then, and then it's like the ardency combined with this remembering <coughs> brings up, like, you know. You have all day to let your mind wander and fantasize and think. You've got these 30 minutes. Why don't, you, why don't you see what can be gained by doing the practice as you know how to do it? You know, i.e., come back to the present moment. Recognize, oh yeah, this is just thought. Thought being now. It's just thinking. Now this is the experience of the body sitting. And breathing in is like this. And breathing out is like this. So that we have this opportunity to clearly comprehend, to be mindful, to experience this present momentness, the satisfaction of radical simplicity of mind, the mind remembering what it needs to remember, balancing itself. And the last piece is it protects itself. These four qualities of mindfulness. So I know it's a list within a list. So we have the four qualities... That Buddha say make up this being mindful, ardency, clearly comprehending, mindfulness itself, which means to be present, mo- in the present moment, to be remembering what needs to be remembered, to be balancing the mind so through this moment by moment balancing. So the mind is aware of how it's doing and knowing when it's getting off balance so that it can correct itself and how to protect itself which is very similar to balancing itself, like knowing when the mind... Now, I start to see this in my mind. It's like going down roads. Joseph Goldstein has a funny way of describing this. He says, it when we first start, it's like we're driving down the interstate, and before we know it, we've not only taken an exit, gone down the road a mile, turned into the dairy cream, and sitting there having, you know, a super-duper Sunday, before we realize we've done anything. And then a practitioner, somebody who's been practicing well, then we start to know it a little sooner. You know, maybe we're pulling into the parking lot. And someday, you know, we see the signs, and we know we're seeing the signs. And we're feeling the impulse, but we know it's just an impulse. And so there's no wavering. We're just driving down the freeway. We're aware of the possibility, but we're aware that we don't want to do that. That's not what we're doing now. And that's like how the practice unfolds, is that sometimes when it's really strong, it's like we have all the impulses to worry, to plan, to be anxious, to fall asleep, but we just don't pick up any of those possibilities. We're just cruising. The mindfulness has enough integrity, enough momentum. But other times we're quite vulnerable. And it really has to do with these four qualities coming online. Now next week I'll talk more about the concentration. But we've got three things we can work on. Ardency, how to inspire that steadfastness, the sense that taking care of the mind is relevant. And now we've got some ways to take care of it, to cultivate clear comprehension, to practice clearly comprehending. That means we're tracking experience enough to see how the motivation, intentional actions, has consequences. So even if we're doing something bad, that's okay, because we'll learn, we'll see, okay, I was being really stingy, and now I feel really badly, and nobody likes me, you know, and just like really getting the connection, okay, that's how it works, that's how life works, and really letting that in. That's called clear comprehension, and then we also can cultivate mindfulness in these four ways, the present momentness of mindfulness, noticing how mindfulness, when it's imbalanced. it the mind is remembering what needs to be remembered. How it's balancing itself. It has this capacity to keep balancing itself by noticing how it's getting out of balance and how to protect itself. Like it learns, don't go there. Don't do that. Nope, nope. Just like a mother, and the Buddha has this great image of a cow herder during the planting season when all the, the plants that the farmers plant, they're just small seedlings, it's like the the herder has to be so vigilant to keep the animals off the crops. You know, and you can imagine having 30 cows, you know, just like tapping them, keeping them on the narrow trail as you bring them out to the pasture land. Because, like, you know, if they walk through the fields, the farmers are not going to be happy. They're going to track you down and either make you pay or punish you in some way. But other times you don't need to be that vigilant with the animals because, you know, Maybe the crops have already been harvested and the farmers, they want the animals to be pooping in the fields to fertilize the fields, so they don't care. So it's like with our mind, sometimes we have to be really vigilant and protected. And how do we know? Well, we only know if we're mindful, like how to protect the mind. Because sometimes we're over-vigilant when we don't need to be vigilant. It's like the time to be relaxed. And the effort needs to be really light and easy. And other times, It's like we're in a dangerous place. We really need that strident, careful attention. We really need the mind to rise to the occasion because we're in a danger zone. I could say something now that would cause real damage, so I better be careful. Or I could do something that would be really have negative consequences in my life, so I need to be careful. So let's take the last seven minutes. It would be nice to hear from you. Maybe you notice some of these qualities already active in your mind, in your practice that you'd like to share, or have questions about what I've said tonight. What comes to mind? Yeah, say your name. Um, I think uh, that an example of the inner state with the is a uh, great one. Like, you know, Whenever you try to slow things uh, down, you notice know, more, you're a lot more conscious so of your actions, and things like that attention piece. Whereas normally, you're just blaring through life. You know, React, yeah. React, react. You you know, yeah, no, that's a perfect example. Would you shut the uh, fan off? It's the middle button on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, what John was saying, it's really important because it does seem like as mindfulness comes into balance that things slow down. And it's they're not actually slowing down. But because mindfulness is more imbalanced, it's seeing so much more. When we're crazy, you know, in our normal, that unfortunately, our more normal states of mind, it does seem like life is just sort of rushing by. But it's because we're not that attentive. So we're only catching like one out of every thousand mind moments, you know, literally. <laughs> That's if we're lucky. And so we're missing so much that it seems like things are happening so fast. But when we're really mindful, I mean, you can actually see thoughts and emotions arise and thoughts and emotions cease. You can notice sensations and sounds arising and ceasing. Now, in our more distracted states, it's like we're lucky to catch it in the middle. And then we're already knowing one another thing so we completely miss it. Going, the other thing going away. We don't see things coming. We don't see them going. And it feels like a rush, like a whirlwind or a waterfall, but it really has a sense of slowing down. Now, partly, you know, initially to do the training, we actually slow down. We simplify our lives. We do less. Um, we might even walk less, you know, I mean, walk more slowly move more slowly, because that's a way of supporting mindfulness, because there's just less happening. But we can't always change our life. You know, sometimes we have to move fast. And there are places like uh, this one monastery I spent time at in uh, Thailand, Ajah Mahabuas Monastery. They don't, they, they don't go slow. Like some of the monasteries in Burma, it's like everybody's moving in slow motion. They really slow down. It can take someone, I'm not kidding, 90 seconds to get up from their meditation cushion to standing, or even longer. I mean, 90 seconds is a long time to take to get up so that they're just noticing each movement. This is when they're doing intensive practice. But this other monastery, Ajah Mahabhua's monastery in Thailand, he really wanted them to move quickly. And they would just rush around and... uh And it was really great because mindfulness actually isn't dependent on the speed at which life is happening internally or around us. Mindfulness is really like the quality of balance. That's what really matters. One of my favorite jobs I had for about uh, seven months was being a bartender in Taos, New Mexico. I was between a job and going back to grad school. This is in the early 80s. And uh, and it was great. There was, like, great music, live music playing. And there were, you know, three or four waitresses that I had to fill their orders. And then all the people at the bar, coming to the bar, and, you know, washing the glasses, stocking the bar, and, you know, all the other pieces of that. And uh, you had to be so fully present to do that job. And it was just like so many sense experiences going on all at once. And it was like, uh, you know, at the end of the evening, I was very alive. I wasn't exhausted by the job because, you know, it's like, I think why people do extreme sports and other sort of risky activities because they're fully present. Now the question is, can we have, if, can we activate the ardency enough that we bring that quality of attention to ordinary life because it matters in the same way it matters when we're bartending or skateboarding down a steep hill or, you know, whatever extreme activities that people have done in their lives. It really matters. But the thing about karma and the consequences of our minds, the activity of the mind, we don't immediately see the results. So we can suffer the illusion that it doesn't matter. Paying attention doesn't matter. So the Buddha wasn't shy. He would do anything he could to scare people into seeing it matters. It really matters what the mind is doing. So we can... um, You know, one of the ways to do that is just observing other people because our life may be cruising along. But we see the holes that other people have fallen into because of not paying attention to their relationship, to their job, to the this, to the that. So we can collectively inspire ardency so that we can be more clearly comprehending, more in the present moment, remembering what needs to be remembered, balancing the mind, protecting the mind. All of this leading to what we'll talk about next week, which is this perfection of balance, when the mind really becomes steady. And then there are moments where mindfulness is effortless—not something that I have to do, but something that has its own integrity. It's like you know those little tops you had, we had at least—you'd spin and then they, and they—they they have a certain um, stability, right? It's like you can even bump it. And it sort of wobbles a little bit, and then it comes back. Have you you remember those tops? What were those called? Maybe tops. That- <laughs> <laughs> what were they? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You pull a string, yeah, and then it would go, and then just the I guess it's the centrifugal force
1: would like give it. Like
0: a gyroscope. A, yeah, yeah, like a gyroscope. It has a certain integrity, and that's like mindfulness when we get enough momentum. It has its own integrity, and it's like a life just works well. The mind just eats up experience. It just comprehends. It just gets what's going on. And it doesn't lose energy doing it. It actually... This is the thing about that momentum. is It's like the mind comprehending the way it is is actually what builds the momentum. Being mindful strengthens mindfulness. As opposed to now, in our normal state, it takes Personal effort to be mindful and it gets tired, we're happy when this sits over. Right? But when mindfulness gets enough momentum, which we're calling you know coming into samadhi or into this beautiful balance, the mind just wants to see and know. It just like eats it up, just consuming, comprehending whatever comes, whatever arises in the field of experience. Happy to do it becoming enlivened in the activity of being mindful. It's finding energy in the activity of being mindful instead of having to exert energy in order to be mindful. So that's an interesting thing to be on the lookout because you might, not that necessarily in daily life, but in moments you might, the circumstances might be such that you just find how effortless it is to be present. And it may sustain itself for a while. And then it, you know, it's just like the top. If you really knock it over, it's going to lose its momentum and it's just, you know, nothing's going to happen. And you got to kind of wind it up again. Yeah, it has to be quick though. We're out of time. Yeah, um, I just wanted to um, So like one of the things that I experienced was, um, which was a little bit surprising to me was uh, when I tried to be really clear that sometimes my head and my heart were am not connected and then I'm caught off guard because it's painful. So I'm open to that experience happening. And that depends on how many experiences I've had right, in my life, but how do I all that been transcending into kind of what would be the next, um, I don't know call it a phase, but into the next and what, the next deeper, I guess I wish you deeper into the next piece for myself. Well, maybe just a, a short answer to that is this quality of integrity. You know, when ardency really has the quality of what here in the West we normally call the heart, so that ardency—it's because it's coming from a sense of basic goodness, of a, a primal caring for this life, and that's really grounded. And the thing about clarity is it can get ungrounded. It can be uh, like uh, affected by the concept of seeing clearly, like the concept of seeing clearly. So it needs to be connected to this being that that wants to care, wants to take care of. It's life, wants to be safe. When we integrate the practice with that real sense of a living being who wants to be safe, then that's a sign, that integration is a sign of of the development of the path more than a more stereotypic idea of transcendence, understanding it more in terms of integration and stability than Ideas of perfection and transcendence. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's a good point. Let's just take a few seconds, enough to take a breath together. And appreciating the teachings. Inspire to live in a way so that our lives become part of the causes and conditions leading to peace this talk like all programs at common ground is offered freely in the spirit of world. generosity yes. to learn more about common ground and its so, programs or if you would like to donate please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org thank you for listening